You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Chris E.W. Green is professor of public theology at Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida, and director for the St. Anthony Institute of Theology, Philosophy, and Liturgics. He is the author and editor of a number of books, including most recently, All Things Beautiful, an Aesthetic Christology. He and his wife, Julie, live in Cleveland, Tennessee, with their kids, Zoe, Clive, and Emery, and their Weimariner, Augie. He is bishop-elect of the continuing Anglican Diocese Diocese of St. Anthony. Chris has his Ph.D. from Bangor University in Wales, a Master of Theological Studies from Southwestern Assemblies of God University in Waxahachie, Texas, a Master of Ministry from Southwestern Christian University Graduate School in Oklahoma City, and a Doctor of Ministry from Oral Roberts University. Welcome Chris E.W. Green to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, that's quite a background. Uh, You have four degrees from Assemblies of God's universities, and now you are the bishop-elect of the continuing Anglican Diocese of St. Anthony. It sounds like a spiritual journey has taken place. Yeah, yeah. Although um, not all of the schools are assemblies, but all the schools are Pentecostal in one way okay. or another. Um, so like Oral Roberts is independent, charismatic, and Bangor University is a center for Penteco- global Pentecostalism. But yeah, I mean, it, I, I was raised, grew up Pentecostal, and I, I still consider myself Pentecostal. I mean, I think part of what's happened to me, the journey has been one of discovering the roots of my own tradition which maybe is a conversation for another podcast, but like discovering that the spirituality and theology I was given didn't come from nowhere. I mean, it was rooted in Anglican tradition via Wesley. It came to us. And so it's been a journey of return, right? A, A journey of coming home to a home I didn't know I had really. Well, it sounds like a, a rich heritage and, um, I've, the number of people, a number of people that I hear from that tune into this podcast have a background in some form of, of, um, I don't know, more conservative, mm-hmm. uh, Christianity. And to me, although you have reached this conclusion, it sounds like we'll talk about this more, but of a God who will finally be all in all that you don't feel like you have left behind your, your Pentecostal sort of spirituality or your connection with the history of the Christian tradition. That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, I I think I've become more Pentecostal, not less, and, and more traditional, not traditionalist, I hope, but more, more rooted in the family history of God's people, uh, Christian and Jewish. Well, you did something that is pretty brave. As far as I'm concerned, you reviewed David Bentley Hart's that all shall be saved. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, and that review appeared at Eclectic Orthodoxy. And so uh, I thought that that might be a good place for us to start. And uh, there was one uh, paragraph in the review, and I would like to start there and maybe try to unpack that. You wrote, I suppose this is for me the bottom line. 
We cannot justify God's ways. The Odyssey is impossible, but we can celebrate the God whose ways we trust will prove to be justifying. And we can trust that that justification, that rectification, when all is said and done, will include everyone and everything. I cannot imagine what else it would mean for God to be all in all, or what else it would mean that love never fails. First God is hell, then he is heaven. And so we sing, O the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Romans 11.36. So I'd like to begin with that tension that you mentioned at the beginning of this quote, where you write, I suppose this is for me the bottom line. We cannot justify God's ways. The Odyssey is impossible, but we can celebrate the God whose ways we trust will prove to be justifying. Could you say some more about that? The, the, the crucial term is celebrate. I think we, we have to, we come to these questions, and, and for good reason, we come to these questions troubled often, not always, but usually, we I certainly did, come to questions about heaven and hell and the judgment of God and the wrath of God and the goodness of God. I come to them troubled. And when you engage them from that place of troubledness, it can distort like what you're finding and how, how you're making meaning of what you're finding. And it is, I think, in prayer, and specifically in shared prayer, in worship, that we start to learn to celebrate God in ways that make it clear to us, right? Make it clear to our to our, our deep hearts, not just to our minds, but to the center and core of our being, that we're not making up the goodness of this God, that there is a long, long, long and broad history of people celebrating this God's goodness and the absoluteness of that goodness, right? That, that he is good and in him, there's nothing but goodness at all. And I think the more we turn our attention to that, to God's goodness and celebrate it, the more we can kind of calm our souls to the point of being able to rethink the problems that troubled us in the first place. So I think, I think that's the key is just, we, we need to worship in ways that puts us at peace and then from that place, think theologically about what we are talking about. We talk about the judgment of God or heaven or hell or wrath or, or any of these other you know, related issues. Well, let's move on to that because the next thing you say in your quote is, and we can trust that that justification, that rectification, when all is said and done, will include everyone and everything. I cannot imagine what else it would mean for God to be all in all or what else it would mean that love never fails. Could you say some more about that? Absolutely. Yeah, I grew up in a, in a like hyper literalist, hyper biblicist culture. And, and so I still have those habits of pointing to what the texts say. And one, one of the things I've become convinced by is that this, George MacDonald, by the way, is the, the one who shifted all this for me, which maybe we'll get to that part of the story later. But when, when you're reading scripture, when any of us is reading scripture, there are some texts that are hard to know what they mean, right? Given what we think other texts do mean. And I grew up, as I said, hyper-literalist, hyper-biblicist, 
But these texts about love never failing or God being all in all or God including all in disobedience that he might have mercy upon all, those texts just had no meaning for us. Like we, we couldn't think about what they mean. We had to explain them away. Mm-hmm. And the texts about hell and judgment and wrath, they made quick and immediate sense to us, right? And I think that that recognizing that it was because I had no sense of who God was. I had no sense of his character and goodness. I mean, to put it bluntly, I just didn't know what he was really like. And because of that, the texts um, told me what I was afraid was true about whatever it was that God is. And having that conversion, and I do think it was a conversion, to seeing that God is like Jesus and and only totally, fully like Jesus, then the texts all looked different. Same texts, right? It's taken just as seriously, even more seriously, I would say, but they all sounded different. They all, they all played, you know, Origen in his Matthew commentary talks about the texts of scripture are like an instrument that has, that has to be played skillfully. And I think I had been given that instrument, but no way to play it. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know whether it was a drum or a trumpet. I had no idea what kind of instrument it was, much less how to play it. And then seeing that God is this one and God is like this. Suddenly those texts, you know, love never fails. That made sense. Right. And all of the other texts about judgment and wrath and hell made sense in light of love never fails. Now, let me um, just present to you sort of a characterization of Pentecostal theology, mm-hmm. which um, I haven't had much experience with it, but I have, I have talked to some folks and who have Pentecostal backgrounds, and, and they say that their experience was something along the lines that in Pentecostalism, there was this sort of difficulty of knowing if you were really saved or not, because if you weren't speaking in tongues, if you weren't on fire, if you weren't staying away from worldliness, then that was a sign that maybe you had lost your, maybe you had lost your salvation. Mm. And so it was sort of this constant attempt to live on fire for God and any falling in any appearance that you were less than 1000% in um, (laughs) could be taken as a sign that you had maybe fallen away and that your salvation had actually been lost, that there wasn't this sense of once saved, always saved in Pentecostalism, but the idea that, that it's by the manifestation of the spirit through speaking in tongues and through um, holiness of living and uh, sort of excitement and, and enthusiasm, that that's the way that we know that one truly is a Christian and is going to go to heaven. So mm-hmm. that is very think? much what I grew up with, David. Now, I, I should say, I mean, as a historian of Pentecostalism, the movement itself is so diverse, it's impossible to categorize all of the various dimensions of the movement. But what you're describing is what I grew up with, for sure. I mean, that is absolutely the, the tenor, the tone that, mm-hmm. that nurtured me, if nurture is the right word for it. It's the, it's the, the environment in which I, I matured. 
So in, in an environment like that, the question of theodicy um, might, might come across a little bit different because God is a God who rightly is destroying the world and, and putting sinners in hell forever. Mm-hmm. And we are lucky if uh, we can present ourselves to, to this fearful living God in such a way that we are not destroyed. So this God destroys everything. He, this God is holy, and this God destroys everything that is holy. And so finally, at the end, all that will be left will be those who, who he recognizes in his son. And that's, that's, right. and that's it. So um, the, the question of theodicy then comes across maybe a little differently in that context. That, that's right. I mean, it's, it's, I've been reading John Calvin's sermons on Micah. And it's, it's throwing me back to my youth. I mean, the people I grew up with were anti-Calvinist, they thought. I mean, they, they constantly talked about themselves as holding to free will. And, and what they believed, ultimately, was a kind of radically individualistic autonomy. You know, that, that line in the Romans text that I quoted, the passage that you quoted, that who has given a, a gift to God to receive it back from him, right? The answer being no one. No one has has had a a gift that they've given to God that God could return to them. But that's exactly what I was taught faith is. Faith is my gift to God. And God rewards my faith, honors that gift by saving me, right? But that my faith isn't truly mine, radically, totally mine, Mm self-sourced, self-guided. And of course, that's, I mean, formally, that's a heresy, but far more importantly, pastorally, that is disastrous because it puts you in a place. I mean, you really can only go one of two places from there. Most people go to despair because they realize they're honest enough with themselves that I can't live like that. I'm not my own source. right? I cannot be my own guide. But a few of us were good enough at life in those conditions to think we were doing it, right? Which produces like, you know, the harshest kind of self-righteousness. And mm-hmm. I mean, we call it Phariseeism. That's not fair to the Pharisees. Like we we are the ones who set the bar for that. I mean, it's incredibly toxic when it goes wrong. Now, well, you think, men- yeah. well, you mentioned that um, uh, the contrast with Calvinism. And I have some uh, friends that grew up in, Calvinism and in their form of Calvinism, um, yeah, there are obvious theological differences with what you were talking about, your Pentecostal raising. But in Calvinism, there is this understanding of the perseverance of the saints, so that you only knew if you were among that's it, those who were going to be saved if you persevered to the end. And so, um, there was no sense of real confidence about whether or not you were among the elect until you got to the very end of your life. And even then it was considered presumptuous to say anything about, are you saved? Well, the correct answer is I have hope. And, and in a, whereas the Pentecostal worship experiences this exuberant, you know, sort of hands up full on, uh, sort of loud, uh, joyful. He said that, that the, that the best experience, the best thing that he could do in church if he wanted his parents to think that he was really getting it was to gently weep. 
mm-hmm. because then they would know that he was really truly sorrowful mm-hmm. uh, for his yes. sins. And so it's sort of two sides of the same. It is. It absolutely point. is. It is. And what I what was striking me about the Micah sermons that I was reading, Calvin's sermons, is this sense of how few the faithful are and how hard it is to be faithful and how quickly the world is destroying itself and how just God is in trying to destroy the sin that is in the world. I mean, that that is the environment I grew up in, very much so. That being said, there were dimensions of that spirituality that I think remained kind of recognizably good. So I, the way I think of it is by the time I was being, you know, I was born and being raised in it, it had become diseased. But what it was traditionally was not diseased. It was a, it was revivalist. It was a kind of neo-monastic spirituality. It, it had its place. There, there is a way to embody the rigor of prayer and worship. What should I say? It, there, there are healthy ways to do that. It was just incredibly unhealthy, right? For me, like what I grew up in was a was a disease form of that. And it and reading these sermons by Calvin reminds me of that tone, right? That well, at some point, well, at some point, there's a break in with um, um, a different vision. You, you mentioned George MacDonald, mm-hmm. and um, and when you're talking here in this quote, you cannot imagine what else it would mean for God to be all in all, or what else it would mean that love never fails, um, that, that, so the justification rectification when all is said and done will include everyone and everything that to me has the ring of George MacDonald, who is sort of seeing through to a final, uh, restoration of all things. And he came out of a, of a, of a harsh Calvinist background Absolutely. to that vision. You came out of a, of a, uh, Pentecostal background, to that vision. So what was that experience like for you? Absolutely. I was in Bible school. I went from, you know, my small church and small Christian academy to a Bible school. I, my intention was to be a preacher. That's uh, the only category we had in ministry. You might pastor a church. You might travel from church to church as an evangelist. You might be a missionary, but Preacher was the calling. So I went to Bible school with that in mind. I took a class on the fiction of C.S. Lewis, uh, George MacDonald, Tolkien, and others. And really, now this is where are you? This is, this would have been in Bethany, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, uh, Southwestern, which is a Pentecostal holiness Bible school. So you're reading George MacDonald at a Pentecostal holiness. Absolutely institution yeah. that which you know you wouldn't or c.s lewis um you wouldn't guess uh, no that's exactly right i mean it, i was incredibly blessed like the the professors that i had there you know they they i didn't know it wasn't acceptable and you know it was a, a literature course i mean this is one of the reasons that you know i became a theologian by way of literature first moby dick same professor and then later, George MacDonald. And what happened is he assigned Lilith and Fantasties. Those were the books he assigned for the course. And I picked up Lilith one afternoon. I think we were supposed to discuss it the next day in class, actually, which tells you something about my 17-year-old self. 
And I picked it up to start reading it. I read the entire book in one setting through the night. And when I finished it, I knew. I mean, it was that absolute, that clear for me. This is right. And I don't know exactly what all it means. I don't, I don't know the implications, but I know this is true. Like this is who God is. And God is like this. And yeah, it's never, it's never shifted for me from that night. Well, that's a good transition because the next part of the, of the quote, you say that at first God is hell, then he is heaven. And so we sing, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given him a gift to receive a gift in return for from him and through him and to him are all things. And so that story of George MacDonald Lilith experiences first God as hell and for an extended, she is an extended holdout. Absolutely. Uh, and then, and, and then, but even for Lilith, finally God is heaven. Um, and I think that matches up well with the idea that for from him and through him and to him are all things. So could you say a little more about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I do think I'm, I'm pretty impatient and I, I mean, I understand the need for it. it. Well, at least I understand the instinct to reach for it, but I'm, I'm pretty impatient with accounts of God that don't account for what scripture has to say about wrath and judgment. I think we, we are answerable for that. Like it, it does mean something. And McDonald, I think, handles that perfectly, right? It is a way of naming God's severity against everything that would destroy us, right? That it's not aimed at God's creatures, but it's aimed at that which defaces creatures. Like God's wrath is toward not the sinner, but the sin that is dehumanizing the sinner. That God is implacable in in that. And of course, McDonald's just getting that from Gregory of Nyssa. I mean, that's this is you know the insight, a patristic insight that I found via McDonald. Right. <clears throat> I think, and I think it's absolutely right. And again, I'll draw attention to that passage in Romans. Right. That we're we do not source ourselves, our faith, our obedience, our love for God. Those are gifts from God to us, not gifts from us to God. And if that's true, and of course it is, Paul says elsewhere, what do you have that you did not receive? If it is true that all things are from God, then how could they not end up in the end being for God and returning to God? I think that becomes the question, right? Now, interesting, C.S. Lewis disagrees with McDonald on this. And I think being, having Lewis's example alongside McDonald's was helpful for me to see Lewis is saying, okay, all things are from God, but they're not all going to return to God. And so Lewis's vision in the end is a tragic one. Uh, he, you know, the title of one of his books, one of the ones we read in that course is The Great Divorce, that we're headed for this final separation in which God will not be all in all. He will be all in some and nothing in others. And yeah, there's a I, famous there, there's a famous scene in that one where there's a woman who's been married to this uh, actor, mm -hmm. and you know he's very uh, flamboyant, and you know he's you know he's uh, saying how could you be happy you know without me, 
you know, he's, you know, um, and she finally says that your, your decisions to, to reject God essentially cannot finally spoil my eternal happiness, you know? And, and so that's how the, that's the divorce. That's right. That's the divorce. That's kind of how it happens. And I, I think that's a deeply tragic and, and Lewis, that's the word he would use for it. It's deeply tragic. And it means that if that were true, and I don't think it is, but if it were true that this, this whole, you know, experiment we call creation ends disastrously. It ends in a, in, in a way in which God must grieve as, as Genesis describes him grieving at, at the flood or after the flood. And, and that, I mean, just instinctively, my sense is no, that cannot be. That can't. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't even hold together. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense of what we claim to be true about God's character or God's nature. It doesn't make sense of the full witness of Scripture. It doesn't make sense of the the full tradition. It doesn't make sense of my own experience. And so I think, that, you know, I I I'm glad I have Lewis such a, such a weighty figure to to disagree with, right? Because he, he's, he communicates it clearly enough that I can see exactly what he's saying and know, okay, I don't mean that. I think that is wrong. Mm-hmm. The irony of all of this is that George MacDonald makes an appearance in yeah. the great divorce. That's exactly right. <laughs> so That's even right. in, even in the great divorce, you know, there's a nod. Uh, there's a, yes, there's there a is. nod, there's a nod to MacDonald and, uh, it was interesting to me in my own in my own story. I had, when, as a young person, I didn't grow up uh, in church, and I got scared off of church by um, uh, exposure to fundamentalism. I thought that 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 was all Christianity was. And a representative of one of those churches said, "Well, if you can't if you can't go along with this, you might try reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity," which I did. And when I started reading that, that provided my first entree into the idea that there might be a truly loving being at the center of creation who was on a project to trying to defeat evil. And the only way that anybody would be lost if they, if they sort of was, if they sort of with full understanding and every possible chance given to them, finally just Mm -hmm. rejected goodness when they had it right there in front of them, like in the great divorce. And so for a while I thought, well, you know, sin makes us do crazy things. And maybe if we take that bad path, that that's what could happen. And so I thought that way for a long time. It wasn't until I was about 50 mm. that the, uh, the challenge <clears throat> came to me from the writing of David Bentley Hart and um, Thomas Talbot to sort of more rigorously try to connect um, the logic of all of my theology. Mm. And I finally realized that I had I had something in my theology where grace wasn't being allowed to have full strength. There was something that was missing. And it was ultimately uh, realizing that George MacDonald gave great expression to this. So I had been, I had been, I'd known about MacDonald, but I thought that that what MacDonald had done was just to enliven C.S. Lewis to think that there was some greater or deeper spiritual world that this one existed in. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know at the time that McDonald had done more than just fire his imagination, that McDonald had clearly envisioned uh, sort of a universal restoration. Absolutely. 
absolutely. Yes. Yes. So I just think it's interesting that that even in conservative circles, people will enthusiastically recommend C.S. Lewis. And once you get to C.S. Lewis, you're only a step away from That's George right. McDonald. That's right. Well, and there's a wonderful, I don't know if it's still in print, but there's a wonderful uh, collection of George McDonald sayings that C.S. Lewis edited and published an anthology. Uh, my roommate who took that class with me in Bible school, he bought it for me and I devoured it. And then yeah, I devoured it's still in print. I've got it. It's on Kindle. Okay. And then I devoured George McDonald's unspoken sermons and the, and that, you know, set me on my path. Now it wasn't until much later in my life when I started really giving myself to academic study of theology and the patristic tradition that I realized, you know, McDonald didn't create this either. <laughs> like, like this is, uh, he's recognizing something that's in the text and in the tradition and giving, giving voice to it creatively. But yeah, that McDonald was the shift for me. And it was, you're right, because I trusted C.S. Lewis. How could you not trust McDonald? And thankfully, I mean, I think that's, you know, in, in, I, I find it wonderful that one of C.S. Lewis's best gifts is that he just introduces us to George. <laughs> okay. Well, I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk more about your, your background and spiritual experiences and, that when I think of Pentecostal folks, I think of people who, yes, they're engaging, they're engaging the text, they, they're thinking, but they're also open to receiving direct confirmation and experience and, and, and basically just information and relationship with God. And so I'm wondering how that was for you to, you know, on the one hand, be experiencing these C.S. Lewis, George MacDonald kinds of things and coming to a vision of of a universal reconciliation, but at the same time you're participating in, you know, Pentecostal worship services. I don't know mm -hmm. if you spoke in tongues or not, or had those types yeah. of experiences, but what, what, what was that? What was that like? Yeah. So I, I was a, an odd child. I had you know, one of my earliest experiences, I guess, if we were, if we're going to categorize it, my, one of my earliest quote unquote religious experiences was during prayer at home, finding myself singing a song to Mary and thanking her for sharing Jesus with us. And it terrified me because, you know, we were, the worst thing you could be in my world was Catholic. I mean, far worse than being, and again, that's another similarity with John Calvin of Geneva. Like the, the worst thing you could be by far would be Catholic far worse than being an unbeliever or even a Baptist who were also on the list of people you didn't want to be. But there it was, there was this song and, and this experience, not just the, the words of the song, which were simple, just, you know, thanking her for being willing not to hold on to Jesus, not to keep him to herself. And, but it was, it was the feeling again, it terrified me, but I knew it was good. And there's a way in which, and I didn't tell anyone about it. It was, it wasn't, I didn't feel safe to tell anyone about what had happened. And all, all of my life, I mean, I, I had experiences like that. Speak, here's a, here's a wonderful story about speaking in tongues. So we had church all the time and we went to church for hours every time we went. And every service, every service ended in an altar call in which everyone went forward to pray for however long, right? There was no official benediction or 
final word. You just got up and left the altar when you were done. Right. And so even as a very young child, I would, you know, go forward and pray, pray my heart out, as we say. And apparently at one of those, I had fallen, one of those services, I had fallen asleep and I woke up with my parents waking me up at home for them to tell me that I had been speaking in tongues and had awakened them. And this again, tells you a lot about me as a young child. The first thought I had was, does it count if I can't hear myself think, if I can't hear myself speak, <laughs> is that legitimate or not? Right. So it right. showed that, I, you know, I had the inclination for these, these kinds of mystical religious experiences, but also the mind of the theologian. And, and that stayed with me right, right, right through. And not all of the experiences were good. I mean, I was a sensitive child. I was a sensitive young man. And the environment was toxic. And what was said about God was often toxic, overwhelmingly so. And so I think, I don't throw this word around lightly, I think some of it was traumatic. I mean, the, the sense of, I mean, I could tell stories that would make your hair stand up about sermons about hell. One of the first sermons I heard about hell was, and I've heard, you know, I dozens, hundreds of sermons on hell. And incredibly graphic stories too. You know, one of the ones that has stuck with me was entitled Interviews in Hell. And the preacher just went through hell in a, in a kind of folksy Dantean vision and interviewed various characters from history and from the scripture who were in hell. And you know, it was imaginative. I mean, obviously I've, it's unforgettable. But given my sensitivities, it was also terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And I think right up until I read that book by McDonald, I, I had those contradictions in me. I had a sense of I knew what goodness felt like, looked like, sounded like somehow. Mm -hmm. And yet I was tormented by the threat of an of ultimate, infinite destruction. Well, a lot and of people now are, are, well, a lot of people now are talking about um, religious trauma, complex PTSD, yes. where if you were, especially as a child before your, your whole uh, frontal neocortex is, firm, is formed, if you're sort of getting hardwired for fear, yes, then, then as an adult, even when you try to start thinking different things or start thinking in a different way, that fear response will kick in that you're doing the, that you're doing the wrong thing. And so I'm, I'm really impressed with people who grow up in environments that have that sort of toxicity in it, but then somehow are able to leave sort of successfully leave that behind. What was that? How did you, I don't know, take the best of what you had grown up with along with you. And then how are you able to leave behind those parts that you thought were toxic? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it was because of the way my parents and grandparents loved me and, and the, the care that, again, I was sensing through all of that. So the environment was toxic. The theology was disastrous, demonic, but there were good people who lived better than their theology would suggest they could live. And 
I think that gave me a kind of intuitive sense of what goodness would be. And what McDonald convinced me of was that I could trust that. But that, that was, you know, as, as he says many times, like love is deepest, love is deepest. And so all that other stuff at the end of the day blows away. I mean, it's chaff in the wind, it blows away. So I don't, I don't think I, I don't see it as some achievement on my part. I think I was cared for really well in a really bad environment. And then the moment wisdom was spoken, I was able to recognize it because I had been at some unconscious level. I had been trained to recognize goodness in spite of everything, right? In spite of uh, what we were screaming and shouting about, Mm -hmm. I, I somehow knew. This doesn't sound to me like somebody who is just in a sort of a philosophical, logical um, program of some kind, and they just in kind of a um, a cool, cool, calculated way uh, mm-hmm. just come to the most logical theological position that there is to hold. This sounds to me like somebody who is who has sort of been in the fire of this super spiritualized environment that has got all of this toxicity running around in it. But in the middle of that spiritual world, you, you experienced something that resonated with you at not just an intellectual level, but at a spiritual level as well. Absolutely. Now, nothing cool about it for me. I mean, it it was, incredibly hot, right? Uh, but it, it was glorious. It was wonderful and freeing, liberating. I mean, it, and it it's, you know, my, my theological work, I, I think is marked by it I, as surely as my preaching or my praying, you know, like I, it is, I believe this to be true about God <laughs> and it's intoxic, intoxicatingly beautiful, right? And that's, um, that's the wonder of it. Well, when you are, one of the things that I have discovered is it's, is it sort of difficult when somebody asks me, well, what do you believe? Mm-hmm. How do, you know, where do I start with that? And what I have come to do is I will say something like, well, what I have discovered is that I believe the best about grace from the history of the Christian tradition. I believe that with the Calvinist Augustinian side that, that grace actually saves and with the Protestant Reformation, sola gratia, you know, I want to affirm all of that. But I also, I also like that part of the Christian tradition that said that God is an equal respecter of all persons and would not give different amount of grace, grace, you know, to people so that God gives the same grace to all. And so what that did is it forced me to rethink uh, how I work through the judgment piece so that the judgment yes. of God finally didn't frustrate the grace of God. And so that was a long journey for me. And that took me mm-hmm. back to early church fathers and, yeah. and it forced me to deal with all kinds of different scriptures. But at the end of the day, that was the conclusion I came to. So how, when, when you're trying to explain your position to people, how do you get into it? How do you get, how do you begin with people when you're trying to explain your current position? Yeah, I mean, it, it shifts because there are, you know, different conversations under different circumstances. I mean, if it's a pastoral conversation with someone who's in a place of disaster or a place of crisis, of course, that takes a different shape. But if I'm if I'm teaching about if I'm, you know, if I'm teaching a salvation class or 
a class on Christian beliefs about last things, I'll say to them, I mean, you and you just sketched it just now in your comment, David, that, that really there are three variations in what Christians believe about God and the end of everything. One, God can save everyone, but does not want to, which is, you know, that kind of double predestinarian, lighter or strong version that you get in Augustine, you get in Calvin and others, right? That God absolutely is capable because he's the source of all. He's capable of doing whatever he wants, but he does not want to save all. And of course, there are nuances there that shouldn't be lost. You know, for instance, Calvin will say, it is not God's nature to punish, but God's justice is revealed only in the punishment of wickedness. So I, I'm not sure that that is a sensible distinction, but he is trying to nuance his claims, right? So I, I don't want to, when I say there are three variations, I don't mean to deny the fact that there, those come in all kinds of forms, but essentially right. we either believe that God can, but does not want to, God wants to, but cannot, that's C.S. Lewis, God wants to do it, but he can't because of our freedom, or God can and he will in ways that do not violate us. Those are the options, right? And, you know, again, there are different inflections, different points of emphases, but at the end of the day, you're going to have one of those three. And what I think you and I have both come to see is, of course, God can, and of course, he will. And of course, he won't violate anyone or anything in the process. Well, one and of the things uh, oh, I'm, ex I'm, I'm excited to hear you say that that way, because I'm just thinking if if we could get back to me, what you're talking about, you're describing sort of how it was in the early centuries of the church, that there are three ways that we think about this as Christians when it comes to uh, the, the final uh, finally understanding what God is is up to in each of these three lanes are available to you as you pursue the Christian faith. If people just knew that that third lane was open to them and that there was a history there and that that was a way that they could express their Christian faith, well, I think that there are people that wouldn't leave because they leave not knowing that that lane is available or they, or they reject it not ever having experienced it because they don't know that lane is possible for them. That's right. That's exactly right. And well, that's I, I, a, oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry to cut you off. I was just going to say, I mean, and I think that's a testament to the damage that's done by bad preaching over time. You know, like it's the consequences are enormous when our churches are when the word being spoken about God is not truly good. There are consequences to that. Well, one of the things that I appreciate about your journey uh, I said the same thing to Robin Perry, and I've said this to others, is that you, you know, you came across this, um, this vision of this extraordinarily good God. And, and so some people might say that you, you deconstructed a bit, you, you deconstructed from this one point of view, uh, to this view of, of this God who saves all, but you have not left the historic Christian tradition, uh, for instance, uh, Carlton Pearson is this sort of story when I think of right. Pentecostalism right. that he had this vision of the God who ultimately saves all. And he got excited about that and started preaching about it. But then he 
he went sort of outside of the bounds of mm-hmm. the historic that's Christian right. tradition. I think that's the fear that some people have is that if you start this deconstruction, that you that you will finally just exit Christianity. And one of the things that that I like about what you're doing is you're staying within the historic core of the Christian faith. I don't know everything about the uh, the continuing Anglican diocese, but when I think of Anglicanism, it is an attempt to to still hold on to the core uh, the core confessions yes. of the Christian faith, whatever whatever the other details are about that, and so I just appreciate that you, like Robin Perry, is a um, is ordained in the Anglican That's church. Right. So the two of you would have that in common. That's right. Now, so I just appreciate that that you have tried, you have not exited the Christian tradition or the church uh, because of this. That's right. Well, I, I, so many thoughts about one is the Christianity I grew up with was in fact heretical <laughs> and it was schismatic. And now I can see that was all I knew. I mean, that seemed like the church to me, but of course it wasn't in any kind of recognizable sense historically. And so for me, this conversion was not a conversion from Christianity to something else, but a kind of recovery of the faith and both the faith of my fathers, Pentecostal, mothers and fathers and the faith of the fathers and the faith of the apostles and prophets. I mean, I really do think what we're talking about here is, is not, it's not a departure from what the scriptures say and what the, the wisest voices ancient and modern say. And so I, I I don't feel uh, deconstruction I don't know if that's the right word for what I experienced. I mean, I, there was definitely pain, but I never lost a sense that God was with me and that the God who was with me is this good God. Like once I saw that and it resonated with that intuition I had, I kind of knew that to be true. And I knew that I was called to do ministry in response to that that real realization about God. And so I, I mean, there were definitely forms of Christianity that troubled me, pseudo Christianity, what, what I've come to call Christianisms um, rather than Christianity. But yeah, I've never, I've never felt a need to leave the church. I understand some people need to leave their church, their local church, because it mm-hmm. is toxic. And I, and I certainly left my local church, but not the church. Well, when, when people, when you, uh, or when people find out what you believe, or you try to express what you believe, what are the common uh, challenges you get, and how do you respond to those? There are a few. I mean, I think, you know, some people like to throw out Bible verses, right? Like, what about this text? What about that text? Those are easy to answer, honestly. I mean, everything comes down to how you read them. But all of those texts can be read well and read in ways that I think are true to the text and true to the Christian tradition of reading those texts. The the harder ones to answer are the ones that are kind of born from the experience of pain. You know, people who've suffered incredible abuse 
and they're thinking about what it means for their abuser to be redeemed. And what it means, I think there are ways, and we, I think those of us who are affirming the God's grace as all-sufficient, that God will be all in all, there are times in which, let me put it like this, I have at times been willing to talk about that or too quick to talk about that in settings where what people were hearing was not the good news of what would happen for them, but the terrifying news of what that would mean for who they would be forced to be with. And I think that that is another reason we really need to keep, unlike Carlton Pearson, we really need to keep stay true to the language of scripture and to the tradition in terms of judgment. We do need to talk about, as McDonald does, we do need to talk about the wrath of God against sin. Because if we don't, we're, we're going to end up putting people who have been terrorized back into the presence of the terrorizers. And that, that cannot be right. So I think those are the objections that I take most seriously because I think they're born out of a, a, a correct intuition that good and evil finally cannot coexist. Like good and evil cannot be, and, and good and evil people cannot be forced to, to, to just figure it out. Well, when we start thinking about the worst things that have ever happened, if we if we take the lens back, then we look to see that, well, if God is all knowing, then these terrible things that are happening uh, are not outside the knowledge of God. And if God is all powerful, we could imagine there could be some way that God might intervene to stop. Um, and so God ends up being implicated in all of this as well through divine foreknowledge and then sovereignty. So how do you work out um, divine foreknowledge and then sovereignty? If God knows, I I like that passage. I've thought about that passage, Isaiah 46, 10, that God is the one who knows the end from the beginning. Mm. So, you know, you've got the beginning, the middle, the end of foreknowledge, sovereignty. How do you put all of that together? Yeah. So this is, this is demanding work. And one of the things that works against us, at least in the, the worlds in which I've moved, is we, we really trade in simplicities. Everything is simplified. And when you're trying to talk sensibly about these things, you, you can't deal in simplicity. So uh, that, just a warning up front, this is not simple. But I think we, we have to get ourselves free from thinking analogically or equivocally about God's knowing and doing and our knowing and doing. So when we talk about foreknowledge and we talk about God as all powerful, God as all knowing and God as all powerful, we, without realizing it, we import into those categories, the sense of God's knowing being like ours and God's doing being like ours. And that sets up the problem of, well, God knew what was going to happen, this evil thing. And, you know, the dropping of the, you know, atomic bomb or whatever. And God did not, could have, but did not intervene. And I think that does present a kind of insurmountable problem. But that's because of the way we've defined the terms. That's not what God's knowing is, and that's not what God's power is. So you can get some versions. And I, and I, I came to this, this, this took a long time. Like the, the intuition about God's goodness and recognizing him in reading MacDonald happened immediately, you know, in one setting. 
but thinking through these categories has taken decades, you know, so that this was not quick, but I, what I've come to see is God's knowing and doing are of an altogether different order. And what God knows is what God is doing. And that means that everything that we've experienced is what we know, not what God knows it to be. And God is not done being God with my past any more than God is done being God with my future. So as I said in that quote that you singled out at the beginning of our conversation, like God is going to rectify all things. He's not going to explain why he didn't intervene. He is going to act upon what for us is past in a way that makes it right. Aquinas, there's a, there's a passage in which Aquinas raises this question about, can God act on the past? And he essentially says, no, that God cannot make the past not to have been, but God can make a good that the past itself did not create. And I think, I think that's half right. I think that God will not make things that have been not to have been but he can act upon them so that they are not what we have known them to be. That what we, what we now grasp them to have been is not what they are. And, and so I, I really am saying, right? For those who are wondering, I really am saying when God is all in all, God will be all in every experience of every creature. So what right for now is what for now is for us moments in which God seems absent, moments of, of horrific evil. It seems God is altogether absent. He's certainly not everything and everything. And so when we say that God will be all in all, we're making a claim about what God will do to that experience and what for us is the future, right? And what we're, we're hoping for. And this is why I think our theology has, our hope is too small, Right. Our hope is much too small that God can rectify every wrong. One of the things that I learned about origin of Alexandria is that Mm -hmm. his view, his thinking about time and the way God thinks about time sort of illuminated something for me because I guess I thought about time as this thing that stretches backwards and forwards and somehow maybe God is on this same timeline with us. Yes. But Gregory of Nyssa thought that that God was the God of the aeons and that the ages. And so what God does is God creates and doesn't just create stuff, but time as well. God creates the time. And so then there are these series of ages and it's, it's in the ages that what God knows already comes to pass within the ages. Mm-hmm. And once the ages are complete, then God will be all in all in origin thought, and nobody will be in an age anymore because we will all be with God who transcends the ages. Absolutely. And that, and then Gregory of Nyssa sort of added to that, the idea that that experience will be an epictasis uh, and um, eternally, uh, an internally unfolding yes. and yes. wonderful journey. Yep. And so when I put all of that together and I thought, and this is coming from people who were in like the <laughs> second, yeah. third century. I mean, it's all there in origin. You're right. I mean, it's all there in origin already. And Gregory, 
is recognizing it and working it out, separating some of the the noise. Yeah. And Maximus, Maximus Confessor comes in along and adds some further nice touches to all of it about the deification of creation in the incarnation, Absolutely. which would go a long way toward your song about thank you, Mary. Absolutely. And that's, <laughs> that's right. And that's if we go back to that for just a moment, what that tells me is that my six or seven year old self, I already knew. I already knew all of this. Like I already had the, what I'm calling intuition about not only the goodness of God, but the goodness God shares with creatures, right? That's what Mary is. Mary is the creature who shares God's goodness completely. She becomes the mother of God. That, you know, that line in Romans, we do not give God gifts for him to return them to us. God gives us gifts so that we can share. And that's precisely, you know, what, what Mary is doing. She's received and she gives and that is, I mean, there's nothing more at the heart of the Christian mm-hmm. tradition than that. So I, she I will, becomes pow- a powerful, a powerful example for all of us. I think she's the for the creature closest to Christ, who is God as a creature. So she's the first one. If we think of you know God working His fullness into all creatures, Mary is the one closest to the source historically. Like she's she's the nearest one, so it's happening to her first, so to speak. So I, I do think she's the the kind of paradigm of what is intended for all. And I mean, Maximus, you know, I found out later. I mean, that's exactly how Maximus is imagining her too. I mean, she's first among the saints because she's nearest to the work of God in Christ. I will say this to go back to the point about time. I think it helps to make a distinction between God acting in time and God acting upon time. And then the climactic act of God as something that's happening to time. So there are ways in which God, different ways in which God is capable of acting in relation to creatures and in relation to time. And what we're hoping for is an act that happens to time, not just in time, but to time and to all times. There's a line in the Psalms, my times are in your hands. God makes all things beautiful in his time. These, these scriptures, I think, point to every moment of every creature. And I mean every creature. I don't just mean human beings. I mean the whole cosmos. Every creature has a history of one kind or another. And that entire history is open to the action of God. And, will, and is awaiting God being all in all. Everything and everything. Okay, well... As we're kind of um, coming, winding down or coming to the end of this interview, um, I just want to ask you if you can kind of sketch out quickly um, or basically your understanding of what is grace, what is salvation, and what is the gospel. Grace is the spirit. I mean, when we talk about grace, we should not think of a thing. That is the action of God being God for us. It, it gets closer to, to think where grace is, the Spirit is personally present and active. Salvation is embodied in Jesus. Like that, what happens to Jesus will happen to all of us. Who he is, we will be. What he is, we will be. And the gospel is the announcement of that grace and that salvation, right? Like this, the, the good news is God is like Jesus and so shall we be. 
and so shall all things be, thanks to the Spirit, right, who is brooding over all things. I like that um, when I learned that the word for gospel uh, comes from uh, the Greek word euangelion, and that that was originally an announcement about a victory in mm-hmm. battle. And so yeah. somebody would come and they would give the good news that a tremendous victory had been won and that in the early church, this idea of the announcement of a victory in the midst of a world where they were still being persecuted mm-hmm. just strikes me as being a very profound, profound. Do you have any thoughts about this, about the the announcement of the gospel as, a, as a, some kind of victory? Absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll point to Micah. I've been, the book I'm working on now is a biblical Christology. So I'm working through Old Testament texts and Micah is where I am right now, which is why I was reading Calvin. And Micah opens, and, and, and this again, I think is another indication of how broadly and deeply the scriptures witness to this truth. So Micah opens with this image of God as the divine warrior leaving the temple to tread through the earth and leave everything that lead devastation in his wake, right? That he come, he's left his place. Micah says to tread the high places to, to melt the rocks. And this is this, this image of God as the, as the warrior, God is the apocalyptic destroyer who's come to, to wreak havoc on the world. But by the time you get to the end of that first Oracle, which is the, at the end of chapter two, Micah says that he is the shepherd who gathers us all like sheep into a fold and the breacher who goes up from within us and breaks open the gate and leads us forth. So you you see that this movement that begins the images of the divine warrior, it seems that he's coming against us, that he's coming to unmake us, to destroy all that we care for. But what it turns out to be in the end, every time, is that the divine warrior is fighting for us. The divine warrior is fighting for us against everything that is against us, right? That God, in the language of Revelation, God is the destroyer of the destroyer. He's he's at odds with not me or you or any good thing. How could he be, right? Those are, they're his, that's his goodness. But he is absolutely opposed to evil and opposed to, anything that would keep us from the joy that's meant for us. And I think that's that's the witness of Scripture over and over and over again. Well, one of the things that can happen is if you or if one develops, comes to a viewpoint of universal reconciliation, that you could have trouble re-engaging at some point with certain passages of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And to me, what you're doing is kind of like what Origen did. He was convinced, I think he used a beautiful image earlier about like a playing like an organ or something, but yeah, 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 he yeah. was convinced that there was this deeper melody yep, that was going on and that somehow every text of scripture could bear witness to it, that there might be a surface reading, but there could be a deeper, a deeper understanding. So in, in, in Origen's day, the reading of scripture was a lot more about the reading of what we might think of as the old Testament, because the new Testament had not come into the form that it has. So 
he was seeing all of this from, he was digging a lot of these things from Old Testament. We would think of Old Testament passages where we wouldn't see it. That's right. But his, his vision, his conviction about the ultimate goodness of God sort of helped him to see all kinds of possibilities in texts that you wouldn't see if you hadn't had that enlightenment, I guess. That's right. And because I think the enlightenment opens your imagination. And once you know, you know, as Origen will say, like nothing in scripture that is unworthy of God can be true. So if I'm reading it there and it seems unworthy of God, it's not the scripture that's in doubt. It's my reading that's in doubt. The scripture cannot, you know, cannot be removed, he will say. So that means my reading has to change, right? Like that something I'm reading here is mistaken. Not the text, but my grasp of it. And I think once you once you yield to that, once you trust that, it all it always turns out that the antidote is near the poison. Like so whatever the text is that's most troubling, there is in that text already present a an antidote to that reading that poisoned you. And it's just a matter of trusting the spirit enough and trusting yourself enough to look for it, to mm-hmm. be present to it. Well, you seem to me to be uh, from this sort of, I could, might call sort of this wild theological journey, yeah, uh, yeah. all these unexpected twists and turns. I mean, as an adult, you seem to me to be now somebody who is, you're not angry about your past. You're not mad at anybody. That's right. You don't have some axe to grind. It's more like you have something beautiful to share. And, Absolutely. And I think that somebody like you has a lot of resilience built into you, a, 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 a joy for living. I know some one time somebody said to me, well, if Christian universalism is true, why wouldn't people just commit suicide so they could just go directly to heaven? And I said, I, I don't. I don't run into people that even think that way. The people that I run into are people like you who feel very enlivened, very excited about their future and all the possibilities. They have so many things to get to now in life. They don't know how they're going to get to all of them, but it's all fun and enjoyable. They have a good news that they want to share with the world. They have a sort of a fundamentally optimistic approach to life. They can, they can experience hardship. And I know you've experienced some recent health yeah. challenges, yep. but in the midst of all of that, they don't feel the absence of God and they still have a positive forward orientation to meaning and purpose in life. So they're always kind of on the lookout for what what is the good that is happening here? How can I draw closer to God who I believe is the ultimate good even in the midst of all of this? So. I think that the kind of spiritual growth and development that you're having is some something that I would gladly recommend to anybody and say, you know, if this is the kind of spiritual this is the kind of spiritual growth and development that can happen to somebody who's on a deeply scholarly path but also has a rich worship life and church life. I mean, it seems to me that you're that you are really thriving in this spiritual path. Yeah, I mean, and it's not a, you know, it, one of the reasons I think that can be true, resiliency, I think, comes in part from clarity about God's goodness and the brokenness of the world. I, I think so much of our torment comes from the confusion we feel when we're suffering. And when it comes clear 
that God is not the one causing your suffering, much less the one planning to make you suffer forever, but that God is the one with you in your suffering, co-suffering with you in, in some way that, that, that kind of clarity allows for resiliency because you don't have to talk yourself into believing something. You don't have to deny what you're feeling and, and that truthfulness. I mean, and this, this is a gift from my father in particular, my father who was the most truthful man I've ever known. Like he just is startlingly truthful. And, and this is, this is what, what I recognize in him. That's how he was able to survive all that he survived. I mean, we don't have time to talk about my dad's story, but his resiliency is rooted in his truthfulness. And I think when we, when we share the truth with people, and I don't mean the truth of the way I see things, but the truth of God's goodness, when the truth of, of God's infinite goodness, when that comes, it brings clarity and clarity allows for resilience. Well, I, I'm really pleased to recommend you and your work uh, to my audience. And so just uh, for people that want to know more about you and what you're doing in your writings, could you just kind of give an overview of that? Yeah, yeah. So probably the easiest thing for people to do is either jump on the Substack, which I have, um, cewgreen.substack.com, which is called Speakeasy Theology, or which is a kind of blog slash podcast I, I, that I do as I have time. And then I also have a website, cewgreen.com, that has some of my sermons and articles, some of my art as well, um, if people are interested in that. And you can you know read a bit more about my story. But Thank you, David, for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, you've written it. Just some, some. What are some books? Some oh, of okay. the titles of books. Yeah. So, the All Things Beautiful you mentioned is a kind of aesthetic. It's the first of a trilogy. I'm working on the second one now, which is a biblical Christology. That was an aesthetic Christology. I'll have a dogmatic Christology, hopefully in a few years. Then those are the academic books, and there are a number in that, in that as well. There's a book on in, interpretation of Scripture that people might find healthy might find helpful. It's called Sanctifying Interpretation. Make sure you buy the second edition. It's much fuller. I mean, I rewrote it to kind of be more accessible. It's a lot more examples. So I think people could find that. I have a, a book of sermons that just came out during Lent um, called Being Transfigured, which kind of works through some of this sermonically. There's a devotional book that Robin Perry actually edited um, called Surprised by God that might be the place to start if people are looking to read okay it's like 95 pages of what were originally sermons but i would say probably if, if people are looking to find their way in you know that that might be the place to start that or the linton homilies that i that i just released and then last thing i'll mention on on the book um is uh, robert jensen who's enormous influence on me it's it's a shame that his name has not come up yet um because he's, you know, I wouldn't be where I am without him for sure. But Jen, and he had that same joy and resiliency too, by the way. But Jen's, uh, unfortunately, it wasn't published till after he passed, but I wrote an introduction, a kind of companion to his theology called The End is Music, that for those who are interested in more theological takes on these issues, I I, I would recommend that. Well, great. Well, thank you again for all of your work. And I know I'm going to be uh, looking forward to your continuing projects and and uh, maybe a future conversation as, as more of your publications come out. I'd love that, David. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.